The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So if you've been with us, we've been studying through 1 John, but we're going to put that on pause now for a couple of weeks. Uh, Why? Well, because this morning is Palm Sunday, and next Sunday is Easter. And so it seemed like the most important week thing we could do for these next two weeks is to get our eyes on the Lord Jesus and what he did for us during that all-important week. Uh, But this doesn't mean we're leaving John behind. We're actually just setting aside his letter for the moment so that we can have a look at his gospel and his account of the life of Jesus. So this morning we'll be in John chapter 12, and we're going to look at the events surrounding the day we call Palm Sunday, which is actually this very day some 2,000 years ago. So we'll be in John chapter 12, verses 1 to 26. So that's John 12, 1 to 26. Now if you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of verses to cover, I just want to ask you this simple question. Where really do you need to be today? Uh, where do you have to go? Right, right here's the best place we could be. John 12, 1 to 26. We're going we're gonna to walk through kind of four episodes Um, where Jesus has these strange interactions with various characters. And in these four episodes with these characters, he responds to these interactions in ways that are even more strange than the interactions themselves. And it's in these interactions that we learn so much about who Jesus is and why he came. So let's look at it together. I encourage you to grab your Bible or you can just check it out on the live stream. John 12, verses 1 to 26. Let's hear God's word. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot One of his disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you. But you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. 
The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we grieve and mourn the situation of our world, our country, our community. We grieve and mourn the loss of being able to fellowship in the presence of one another. But we come to you today, Lord, knowing that you are our sovereign king. You are working out your plans for your glory, and you are working out all things for our good. And we pray now, God, as we come to your word together, even though we are separated by distance, we pray that your Holy Spirit would bind us together and that um, you would visit us by your Spirit, each one, um, hearing the sound of this message, and that you would speak into our minds, into our hearts. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. For those who are yours, encourage them, build them up, get our eyes on you for joy, for peace, for conviction. And Lord, for those who don't know you yet, as Savior and King, reveal yourself to them today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, John chapter 12, 1 to 26, we have a mysterious king. Jesus is a mysterious king. Why would I say that? Well, you see this series of strange interactions with various characters and Jesus' responses that are even more strange in the interactions themselves. The first episode we could call the strange anointing. Jesus is at a dinner with his friends, and strangely, Jesus pours out, or excuse me, Mary pours out this anointing on Jesus. But Jesus' response to that is even more strange. On the second episode, we could call it the strange hatred. Jesus is deeply hated by these religious leaders. And again, his response to their hatred is even more strange than their hatred for him. Third episode, we could call the strange reception. Jesus is received by the people as king as he enters Jerusalem. But again, he has a strange response. Even the disciples didn't understand what it meant at the time. In the fourth episode, we could call the strange message. Jesus begins to unpack what is happening. The mystery begins to unravel. Things begin to make sense. Because even though Jesus seems so mysterious at the time, he does, want, he does not want to stay mysterious to you. He wants you to see what it all means, who he is, what he's done, so that you can respond to him accordingly. So this is what I want to see with you today. Our mysterious king in five parts. Number one, the strange anointing. Number two, the strange hatred. Number three, the strange reception. 
Number four, the strange message. And number five, your response. How will you respond to Jesus? So first of all, the strange anointing. We saw this account beginning in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 12. Uh, We realize it's Saturday evening, six days before Passover, and Jesus comes for a dinner with his closest friends. He's in Bethany, that's where Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. And we know from this gospel that they loved him, and he loved them. These are some of Jesus' best friends. And we think specifically of Mary and how she loved Jesus. She used to sit at his feet and just listen to him teach. She loved to listen to him teach. And we remember that uh, just last chapter, Luke, or, yeah, John 11, she was angry at Jesus when he didn't come to heal her brother, Jesus, her brother Lazarus. She, uh, Jesus didn't come and he let Lazarus die. And Mary had said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We can hear the pain in those words. But Jesus had come. He had cried with her in her pain. Just by the way, take that to heart. Take that to heart right now. She felt deep pain. She felt disappointed by him not coming to heal her brother. She was disappointed by him allowing Lazarus to die. She was hurt by that. Lord, if you'd just come, my brother would not have died. And Jesus comes to her in that moment and he weeps with her. Take that to heart for yourself this morning. But he didn't just weep with her. Then by his word, he raised Lazarus from the dead. The dead man walked out of the tomb. That must have been overwhelming. And she loves him all over again and even more. And she loves him more now that he's here again. Mary loved Jesus so much. We just remember here, Jesus had real relationships. Jesus had and has real relationships. Maybe you can relate a little. Have you ever gotten emotional with family or friends during an intense time? Or during a time to say goodbye? And you're feeling the power of that moment. You're you're aware of your love for these people. It must have been like that at this dinner. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem during Passover as king. Everybody anticipates it, but everybody also knows he's deeply hated by powerful enemies. There's this tension. He's so loved by his friends. She's feeling all of this. And so, she, so Mary does something here, very surprising to express her love. It would have seemed very strange. So you have everyone reclining at table at this dinner, and that's the way they would have done it. You would have kind of leaned on some cushions, your head near the table, your feet spread out. And Mary, during this dinner then, grabs the most expensive thing she owns. It would have been this vial of perfumed ointment. And scholars tell us this thing um, was probably worth about one year's wages. So if you can just imagine everything you make in one year, the entire year, in this vial. And Mary comes and breaks it open. And once it's open, it's open. And she pours it out all over Jesus, his head, and anoints his feet. One, worth of, one year's worth of value, gone in a moment, in lavish love to Jesus, given in humility, in thankfulness, as she washes his feet 
with her hair. And no one could have missed it. I mean, you can imagine the fragrance would have just overpowered the room as everyone was stunned, sensorily stunned with the fragrance of her love for him. And Jesus receives it, such an amazing, strange expression of love. Judas was deeply annoyed by it. You see in verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of Jesus' disciples, he was about to betray him, said, Hey, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas is saying, this is impractical. What about social justice? Let's get the worship out of the way. But as we see, he's only sort of selfless. He was helping himself to the funds for the poor. But Jesus here won't have it. He protects Mary, he vindicates her, he stands up for her, and here's where we hear his strange response to her strange love. Verse 7, Jesus says, leave her alone so that she may keep this for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. So Jesus is saying, you, you can always serve the poor and you should, but now is a, new, a unique moment because you have me sitting here. And he also says, and this part would have been so strange, she can keep this for my burial. What does that mean? Keep what? It can't mean keep the perfume. That's gone. That's poured out. So maybe it's something like you can keep this expression of love, which I am so worthy of, in light of my death. Jesus is saying, with my death impending, it is worth all the love in the world. It's worth the pouring out of the greatest treasure that you have. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is quoted like this in the same moment, Mark 14, 8. He says of Mary, she's done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. There's a value in the mystery of Jesus' impending death. And Mary has expressed in her lavish love the nature of that value. So that's the strange anointing. Now we're going to look at the strange hatred. We see that in verses 9 to 11. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Then in verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So we see again, large crowds are swelling, all these masses of folks piling into Jerusalem for the Passover, our hearing of Jesus and everything that he's done, especially the recent raising of Lazarus from the dead. And we see here the religious leader's response. They not only want Jesus dead, which we see in the previous chapter, they, they now want Lazarus dead. You could ask why, why kill Lazarus? What has Lazarus done? What is Lazarus' crime to deserve death? Well, here's Lazarus' crime. Lazarus' crime is that Lazarus is evidence. The religious leaders are incredibly religious. They say they love God externally. They are very moral. But they hate Jesus with a strange hatred. Why? Well, number one, he exposes their self-righteousness. 
and the fraud that it is, despite all their religion, despite all their good personism, they are not right with God. He exposes them of the reality of their sin and their need, their desperate need for him. And as King Jesus dethrones them from their seat of power to be right with God, they can no longer be the authority. They'll have to submit to him. And they hate that idea. And so we see why they hate Lazarus. They hate Lazarus because Lazarus is evidence that Jesus is everything they deny Jesus to be. He stands there as a sign to everyone that Jesus is right. And they are wrong. You know, it's, we remember, it's one thing to be spiritual, think of Jesus as a good teacher, and to take some of his advice. It's another thing to come face to face with his claims to be the very son of God and the only way to salvation. It's another thing to face the evidence that he is in fact so. So if you face that evidence on who he is and what he claims, if you submit to it, if you believe it, you'll have to admit some things about your sin and your need for him. If you receive the evidence of who he is, you'll lose the, the right to be control, in control of your life. And not everyone can handle that. But everyone does have to make a choice. You can either submit to the evidence on who Jesus is, or you can bury it. And these guys literally want to bury the evidence. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That proves who he is. And they won't submit to that. So they'll bury it. It's a strange hatred. But again, Jesus has a response that's even more strange. It's not recorded in these verses, but it will be in later chapters. Jesus knows he has these enemies. He knows they're coming for him. He knows he'll be betrayed and they'll come to kill him. And what does he do? He lets them take him. He gives himself over to them. He doesn't run away. He doesn't struggle and fight. He surrenders himself to them to the point of a cross. That's a strange response to enemies like these. So we've seen the strange anointing, the strange hatred. Now the strange reception. Verses 12 to 18 tell us this story. Jesus begins to enter Jerusalem during the, Israel's greatest feast as the promised king. And the crowds are coming in mass, thousands and thousands and thousands. And as he um, heads into Jerusalem, they line the streets shouting his praises. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from Psalm 118, which refers to the coming of God's victorious, promised king. A king who will be like David of old and deliver us. They're shouting his praises. We need to remember some context, though. At this time in history, Israel's suffering under the brutal rule of the Roman Empire. You know, that helps us understand the significance of palm branches. Why wave palms? I, I do think it was somewhat of a politicized symbol. Palm branches would have reminded everyone 
of the, uh, of the old leader, Judah Maccabee, a Jewish leader who led a revolt and drove out the invading foreign armies around 160 B.C. In fact, later, when Jewish insurgents are fighting against Rome, they printed coins, and guess what the image on the coin was? Palms. It was a symbol of um, Israelite political identity and revolution against the invading foes. And that's what these people are waving. It's, it seems then that the crowds kind of expected this Jesus to head straight to the fortress of the Roman soldiers and maybe begin the revolution that will set Israel free from Roman rule. And that's why Jesus' response is so strange and so surprising. Did you see what he chose to ride into Jerusalem on? You know, if it had been a large war horse, the crowds would have gone crazy. The war would have begun. And you know, uh, just by the way, John wrote another letter called Revelation. And guess what Jesus is writing in his second coming? It's a war horse. So take warning. <laughs> he will come back as the conquering king. But that's not this entrance into the city, not this time. On this time, he chooses a young donkey. A young donkey, how strange, how humble, how peaceful. And John tells us this is a direct fulfilling of a prophecy we would find in the book of Zechariah. So I want to show you that just for a few moments. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 11. Listen to what this text says. Zechariah chapter 9, 9 to 11. The text reads in verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Verse 11, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set prisoners free. Did you hear that? John is saying the people can rejoice. John includes a reference to Isaiah and he says the people don't need to be afraid because the king has come and not only has he come, the nature of his coming is what brings joy and courage because look, Jesus is saying with the choice of riding a young donkey, he's saying this, have a second look at me. Have a second look. I am the king, he's saying, who will rule over everyone and everything forever. But I'm the king who's come right now to make peace. To make peace. To destroy the chariot. 
to break the bow. I've come riding this donkey because I'm coming in humility to bring salvation. And I'm coming, Jesus says, through the blood of the covenant, through the blood of the covenant that will set you truly free. Jesus is saying, if I went and and, uh, overthrew Rome right now, it still wouldn't set you free. It still wouldn't give you what you actually need. It still wouldn't really fix the problem. If I fixed all the outward circumstances right now, I really wouldn't have fixed anything. I've got to fix something different. And the way I do that is to come humbly, to make peace through the blood of the covenant. So don't be afraid. Rejoice. And as we see in John chapter 12, verse 16, this was mysterious. This was strange. His disciples did not even understand these things at first. So we've seen this strange love, and Jesus refers to his burial. We've seen this strange hatred, and we see Jesus is going to give himself over to his enemies. We've seen the strange reception where he comes as a king, but not as a conquering political king, as a humble, saving king. And now the strange message. So we'll look at verses 19 and following. The Pharisees said to one another, you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The Pharisees are just admitting we lose The masses are in love with him, but you know, they're unintentional prophets, as some strange people do show up. Who is it in verse 20? Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and what they say in verse 21 is notable. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. This is an epic moment that Gentiles outsiders to the knowledge of the true and living God, would now come in and say, we want to know the Jewish king. We want to see the Jewish Messiah. And we remember God is keeping his promise recorded throughout the Bible that he is going to show all nations, all kinds of people, his gracious blessing through Jesus. The Gentiles are coming, and it brings everything to this tipping point for Jesus. And that's where we hear his surprising message. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered and said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's heading into the city. He's going to be glorified. What does that mean? He's going to be seen and celebrated as beautiful and valuable. And by the way, he's not saying, I was glorified in that way as the crowds wave their palm branches. The time for glory is coming. It's yet to come. You haven't seen it yet. And here's what makes it so strange. In verse 24, he begins to talk about death. Death. Haven't you seen it so far? Mary anoints him, and Jesus wants to talk about the value of his burial. The religious leaders hate him. And Jesus is going to give himself up to them so that he'll be killed. The crowds sing his praises, but he rides in on a donkey and talks about how he's going to make peace through the blood of his covenant. 
The strange message is that Jesus is going to be glorified most greatly through his death. It's so strange. It's so ironic. I mean, crosses were the ultimate de-glorifier. We're going we're to beat you to the point where you're unrecognizable. We're going to hang you up naked so everybody can see you and mock you. You're just going to drip every bodily fluid as you slowly die over the, the unbelievable agony of the slow hours. There's nothing glorifying there. Except Jesus says, but there is. So he tells the story, the parable of the seed, verse 24. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So in Jesus' example of a seed, um, he says, I guess the seed isn't glorified by staying a seed. If you, uh, you're a little seed and you say, no, I'm keeping my seedness. Well, that's great, but that's all you'll ever be, is one seed. But if you die to your seedness, something miraculous happens, and it happens in the world around us every season. Something miraculous happens. The, the seed changes, and new life appears in a plant that grows and flowers and spreads even more seeds. New life appears. You know, it's been said that an entire world of forests exists in one acorn. And an, an entire world of life and wood and shelter exists just in the tiny ex reality of this one acorn. And listen. An entire new creation lurked within Jesus. He is the seed. And all the life of that new creation exploded from him in his death. Jesus is talking about the glory of what his death accomplished because Jesus does not simply die as another Roman victim. Oh no, he, he dies intentionally as the substitute. He gave up his life. It's on purpose. No one takes it from him. It's his choice. It's his mission. And it's, his death is to bring new life, eternal life for his people. Let's remember the basics we're sinners. We do evil things. But that's, that's really not the core of our sin. We do evil things because we have an evil inclination against God. We, we are born believing the lie that God's not good or valuable, that His word is not true, and that we will find the deepest satisfaction of our hearts in anything other than Him. So I want to ask you this morning, can you see that in yourself? Can you see that how that has led? to evil deeds, a lack of love. 
And we remember not just that we're sinners, but that sin has a penalty and a power. The penalty, first of all, we deserve God's just wrath for our sin. We're guilty. He's good. He's just. We deserve it. If there's any justice in the world, it should fall on us. We're not only, the, only under the penalty of sin, we're also under the power of sin. We love the wrong things like an addiction. And that is why the world is as broken as it is. But Jesus died, like that prophet Zechariah said, to set the prisoners free. He sets us free in his death from the penalty of sin. He's the substitute. His life for ours. He takes the wrath we deserve for our sins on the cross. And he gives us the righteousness he earned through his perfect life as a gift through faith in him. He sets us free from the penalty of sin. He also sets us free from the power of sin. Through faith in him, not only are we forgiven, our hearts are changed. And we begin to truly love what is truly beautiful. It's the beginning of the new creation. And as the seed, when he died, he unleashed the power of a new creation in his people that will result one day in an entire new earth. His kingdom forever and ever. That's the glory of his cross and resurrection. That's the revealing of the mystery. Jesus is the king who dies to set his people free. We've seen that in his strange anointing, the strange hatred towards him, his strange reception, and now this strange, wonderful message. So we want to finish with this thought. What's your response to him? How are you responding to Jesus? And let's do that as we remember the characters in this story. What did the Greeks do? What did they do? In some way, they left their home, and they left their culture, and they came to a strange group of people, and they said, we want to see Jesus. Have you done that? Some of you are thinking about that right now. You're, you're thinking about what it means to, uh, to check in with this weird group of people called Christians, go to this weird thing called church, because you're thinking, I want to see him. Have you come? Have you come to seek him? The crowd misunderstood Jesus. They wanted him as king, but only to a certain level. Hey, can you fix the economy? Hey, can you restore our nation to glory? Jesus won't come as a middleman king. And by the way, even if he fixed all your outward circumstances... He still hasn't fixed your major problem, your sin problem. Are you willing to have Jesus as Lord and King of your entire life? Are you willing to have Jesus as Lord and King of your very heart? And this kind of exposes us, doesn't it? We remember now the religious leaders. They hated Jesus to the point of wanting to bury the evidence what are you going to do with the evidence of who Jesus is? 
There's no one more humble, no one more loving, no one more powerful. Here he is telling us he's going to die for sins, that he's a promised king, and he offers new life in him. What will you do with the evidence of who he is? But you know, as we consider our response and the response of the characters in this story, we remember that the main point of this story is an invitation that we will not only come like the Greeks, but that we will respond like Mary with lavish love. Mary saw. She didn't see it all completely or perfectly, but she saw. She saw this Jesus who's strong enough to raise Lazarus from the dead, but humble enough to cry with her and receive her lavish love at that dinner. She saw the beginnings of what we can see here from this text. Jesus is strong enough to destroy his enemies with a word, but he's humble enough to give himself up to their abuse because he loves you and he wants to save you from your sin. Jesus is strong enough to judge the world as king of kings, and one day he will, but he's humble enough to ride into a donkey and to make peace between you and and God because he's judged in your place. Jesus is great enough, worthy enough to condemn you to death. But instead, like the story of the sea, he died so that you could have life. She saw just a piece of this, and it responded in loving him more than anything. She poured out her treasure upon him. And so we see, I think, in this text that Mary's kind of the first harvest of what it means for the seed to die and bring new life. Mary experienced it. Look what Jesus said, John 12, verse 25. He said, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates in this life, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you see, just like Jesus, to live, you've got to die. You've got to do what the religious leaders wouldn't. You've got to die to your own self-autonomy, self-control, and bow to the knee to this king. You've got to die to your own self-righteousness, the idea that you are good on your own, that you've kept whatever standard it is, and you're right with God based on your own performance. You've got to die to that. It's a fraud. It's false. And instead, you've got to rely wholly and completely on him. And in that death, you'll live. Think about it. Mary died to her perfume, that, that thing that was worth an entire year of wages, she died to that. She, she poured it all out, and she did it with a smile on her face. She did it with tears falling from her eyes because she'd found a greater treasure than her life savings. It was the person of Jesus And so you see in that story, as she died, she'd be the first to tell you, I was alive. I was alive in my love for Jesus. That's what this means. 
to die to all other ultimate kings, to die to all other ultimate loves, all other ultimate treasures, and to be devoted to Jesus. That's what real faith looks like. That's what freedom is. That's what Jesus won by the blood, his blood shed, the blood of the new covenant. That could, you could have a new heart and new eyes to love new things because you see a new king. A king that's better than anyone else. More valuable than anything else. And so Jesus talks about freedom. The faith that trusts Jesus will also follow him. The faith that trusts him escapes the penalty of sin. You're forgiven, you're loved, you're made righteous, you're adopted by the Father through faith in Jesus. The faith that loved Jesus escapes the slavery of love for sin. You're set free to love him and his ways. And now this freedom looks like following. If anyone serves me, he'll follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Friendship with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, and Jesus says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Can you imagine that? The Father in heaven saying, that's my guy, that's my gal, that's my son, that's my daughter, well done. That's freedom. That's living. So pour out your treasure on Jesus. Knowing he is a treasure. He's our mysterious king. And the mystery revealed is this. How such a good king he is. Who died to set us free. Let's pray. Jesus, you are mysterious. Because there's no one so, un, no one so great, so holy, so strong, so magnificent. And yet no one so kind, so humble, so loving. And I pray that uh, we and everyone listening to this would be able to see you in a new way. And see your goodness and see how, um, though you, you didn't have to do this and we didn't deserve to do this, you came to die for us to set us free. And I pray that our freedom would, would explode uh, because of your death and resurrection that we would see all the more how beautiful, how wonderful you are, that we would put our faith in you to be right with God and that we would follow you because you're the greatest treasure. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. We love you, church. Hope you're doing well. Can't wait to be with you again. Have a great Sunday. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.fountainoflifefellowship.com folfcrc.com